yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff that we could learn today. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I always want to know, why did why did evolution stop at stereo vision? Why didn't it go on to, uh, you know, digital or CD vision? <laughs> HD. How come we don't have Dolby vision? How come I can't That's see right. in 3D? Why do I need glasses to see in 3D? <laughs> These may be questions people are wanting to know. I think they are. And I think <gasps> it's our duty as journalists to <laughs> journalists. to ask the hard questions. Man, becoming a journalist is easy. <laughs> Who needs education? That's right. We need is some microphones. We're journalists. <laughs> This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Flurry, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Banter, banter. Uh, my name is Rob Minot, and joining me today, as usual, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Good day. And Mr. Steve Barkley is here. Howdy. And we're journalists. Yes, we are. <laughs> We've decided we're <laughs> That's journalists. Right. We're going to ask the hard questions today in this podcast. That's right. Yeah, who knew that all it took to become a journalist was setting up some mics in a basement? <laughs> Not and having questions to ask. Yeah, I, I think I think all it takes to be a journalist these days is uh, an internet connection. <laughs> yeah. Well, that too. It's true. Anybody can generate news as long as they have a Facebook account. Yep. And some 65-year-olds to read your post. <laughs> and then share them. Yep. Jeez, uh, where to start? You know, I feel like, I really do feel like we're still out of practice of this a little bit. I think the Christmas break kind of hurt us. Still out of practice? Yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I feel like it's it's going to take a few episodes under our belts to really get a feel for this again and how this all works. Well, we haven't really had a couple of weeks in a row flowing yet either, right? It's been kind of broken up and sporadic. So mm -hmm. once we get back to a regular recording schedule, this should be all right. Yeah. So you think we'll get better at this? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, that's, it's, yeah, it's like a crazy. Yeah, I was, was going to say that sounds really optimistic. <laughs> it's just, uh, a stretch. It is. How's your week been, Ryan? My week has been fine and dandy. How's your week been, Steve? Mine's been dandy, but not fine. Hmm. Hmm. Rob, how about your week? Oh, thanks for asking, Ryan. My week has been splendid. Splendid? Nobody cares. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. This is all getting cut out. <laughs> no. It's going nowhere. Uh, hey, uh, Ryan. Yes, Rob. I, I heard a rumor that we have a pretty good show today. I've heard that same rumor. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. since you started it. <laughs> uh, what, what are we doing today? Today we are talking with Dr. Chad Andrews, who is the Manager of Research and Education at the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And cool. what, Steve, what is the Foundation Fighting Blindness? Well, Foundation Fighting Blindness is a uh, nonprofit uh, that uh, basically does what it says on the tin. 
they uh, they fight uh, blindness. They uh, they step in the ring with blindness all the time, and uh, they just punch it right in the head. <laughs> <laughs> now they're doing some some very important work. Of course, uh, they are based in where are they based? Toronto, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And uh, been around for years, and uh, yeah, they uh, do a lot in the realm of uh, vision research. So we, we invited Chad to come on and uh, talk a little bit about uh, how they've been doing the last few years and, and what progress has been made. There has been some really incredible research that's, that's happened over the last few years, and uh, there's all kinds of exciting developments. I was at a, a Foundation Fighting Blindness show uh, in Victoria a little while ago, and the exhibit area that I was in for the first time was actually in the area where they were doing the presentation. Like every other show that I've done with these guys, I've been outside of the presentation area. Right. And uh, this was the first time I actually got to hear about a lot of the stuff that's going on and the studies and trials and things that people can can connect with um, through the foundation. So there's some uh, some amazing amazing stuff with uh, some crazy results happening right now. Uh, right down to uh, the point where um, you know there's there's like uh, a, a genetic uh, cure for one specific type of, of blindness it's it's really like, yeah they basically correct the gene and off you go there you go your wow vision loss is cured wow yeah so <clears throat> and you, we're gonna we're gonna be hearing more and more about about this kind of research down the road and people will be able to participate in more of these these programs and studies yeah so they they look at the they look at the different studies and uh, they they rate them and and uh, determine you know are they properly set up are they are they safe you know is there something to it is there something to it yeah huh hmm interesting and they're a nonprofit correct yes yeah hmm. which is stupid to me I don't under, I don't get that like why are they a nonprofit why aren't we funding these these organizations that are doing such important work. Well, there, I mean, there's, there's grants and bursaries and stuff available through the, through the government for, you know, research purposes. Um, nah, still, we should be throwing, we should be throwing some serious money at, like, let's take that, going somewhere with that, that $5 billion wall money and let's throw it at Foundation Fighting Blindness. How about that? Uh, that, that wall's American. And besides, that's, uh, that's not our money. That's, uh, I know. That's, <laughs> I believe that's Mexico that's paying for that. <laughs> that's right. But no, I, I never said Mexico would pay for the wall. Well, nobody said Mexico would pay for the foundation <laughs> fighting blindness either. Listen, if I had $5 billion, I actually would give him the money for a wall. And then it's my wall. I can use whatever I want. I'd put advertise. I'd sell advertising on it. And I would just fill. That's a lot of mileage of, of, uh, of advertising space. Hello. You could probably make that $5 billion back that, pretty quick. That's a lot of billboards. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. What are the 1,900 miles or something? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Jose, we made it. We made it to America. We made it to the Great Wall. But now I can really use some Doritos. <laughs> it's making these billboards making me hungry. That's like the worst Mexican accent I've ever heard. <laughs> Thank you. Listen, I'm a journalist, not a comedian. <laughs> Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to Chad about the research being done and, you know, the different eye conditions that are actually being focused in on. Um, there's so many different varieties of eye conditions out there. You know, how do you pick and choose which ones are, you know, prioritized? And To me, it's just going to be interesting to, to hear what's going on. Uh, hey, but before uh, we bring Chad on, let's uh, talk some news. Uh, 
news? Ooh, what kind of news can we talk about? Well, here's one thing that we can talk about. Let's talk about something stupid first. Oh, that's because that, that's really our specialty. <laughs> <laughs> stupid. <laughs> uh, have you guys heard about this Bird Box movie? The Bird Box movie. Yeah. So have you, have you seen this movie? Yes. Yes, I have seen this. Yeah, movie. Yeah, it wasn't a very good movie, was it? It was okay. I you know, it was very middling, suspenseful. Middling at best. Very suspenseful, but uh, yeah. Can you can you give it a rundown uh, to explain it to somebody who maybe has not seen it? It's a Netflix movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's a Netflix movie. It's basically uh, kind of a monster movie. Uh, um, uh, the, the premise is that uh, there's some sort of evil force running around, and uh, if you see it, you go crazy, you go kill crazy, and you try and kill everybody around you. Yeah, basically anybody who wants to stay alive, if they go outside, they got to be blindfolded. That's right, so they don't see the monster, so they don't kill themselves. Yeah. So uh, we have uh, the lovely and talented uh, Sandra Bullock starring in this. Debatable. And, uh, <laughs> well, which? Part, part of that debatable. I, lo- I, lovely I or talented? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not a big Sandra Bullock fan, to be really? honest. Yeah. No. All right. But she's lovely. I'll have, to, I'll have to see if it's described and maybe watch it this weekend. Yeah. Yeah, I'd give it a shot. I don't know. It, like, it, honestly, it's not. A, it's not a great movie. It's it's okay at best. Anyways, we won't get into that because we're not a movie review show, obviously. But right, but the, the, we the, are now. The, <laughs> we are movie the, reviewers and journalists. <laughs> our, our resumes are just growing. Today, so right. Yeah. Uh, the, but the, the reason why we're talking about this, though, however, is that as part of their a viral sort of marketing or just uh, word of mouth spread about this movie, and it, it sort of caught on and on social media and this idea of what what people were calling the bird box challenge sort of came up which was essentially able-bodied people putting on blindfolds and running around trying to do things for up to 24 hours uh blindfolded can i ask a question though go why is it called bird box because um, birds go crazy around the creature oh okay so they're carrying like a box of birds to sort of make sure that the monster isn't in the area oh okay so it's like a it's like the canary in a coal mine right, kind okay. of idea so uh yes so people are out there blindfolded running around and uploading these videos to youtubes and there's youtubes youtubes god <laughs> sound you- like i'm 75 you're in there youtubes god Granny, where did I put my YouTube? <laughs> That's right. I see my YouTube. Get the Google machine out. I want. I want to watch the YouTubes. <laughs> um, no, so people have been uploading these videos to YouTube and you know running into walls and running around. And of course, this has gotten the attention of the visually impaired community, of course, because you know this type of practice has actually been looked down upon uh, by the community for quite a while now. Um, there was probably a time when the idea of of blindfolding people and having a, a bit of a blindness simulator was sort of popular, uh, but certainly in the past, what what would you say, 15, 20 years, that it's definitely grown out of favor, correct? Because Well, I think there's people on both sides of it still. Like uh, You can still buy vision simulators, and there's certain organizations that still use vision simulators, but... Um, you know, yeah, it leaves a it leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because they, you know, they feel that it's not really a true representation of of what they're experiencing. You know, and and you know, for for somebody to just 
slap on a blindfold and start walking around um, is is pretty dangerous because obviously they got no orientation mobility skills like right. a, a trained blind person would have. Um, so it's it's just really a bad idea. Now on the fortunate side, there's the chance that some of these people will be killed and removed from the gene pool, <laughs> but uh, you know that's that's not a guarantee. The same people that did the Tide Pod challenge. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the cinnamon, the cinnamon <laughs> snorting one. Or, yeah, hot yeah. sauce. Or, or or hot no, that was cinnamon eating, wasn't yeah, it? They yeah, they ate cinnamon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all really bad ideas. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah, so it, it has caught the attention of, of sort of the of the community in, in general, and it's it's brought forward this conversation again, where where you know, and and rightfully so, uh, you know, if I was you know if I was in the blindness community and you know watching able-bodied people slapping on blindfolds and running into walls, and I'd be laughing my ass off. <laughs> well, that's fair. <laughs> True, but after that, I'd be annoyed because. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's just it's just a bad idea, and it you know again it reinforces this this idea that people living with blindness on a daily basis yeah, walk into walls. <laughs> yeah, it, you know can't uh, can't manage. Yeah. It, it actually yeah it, it which is a shame because you know when when media like this comes out and and brings something like the idea of blindness into the into the conversation into the the you know general social conversation it's just a shame that it's done in a negative way that doesn't actually benefit the community at all so in that sort of way it's it's a little bit frustrating but in the upside of this is that in two weeks no one's going to remember bird box and no one's going to remember the bird box challenge <laughs> that's, these that's things are quite likely these things are very fleeting but uh we just thought it was interesting but but it got enough hype that netflix actually came out and made a statement uh they they uh, tweeted out uh, can't believe I have to say this, but please do not hurt yourselves with this bird box challenge. <laughs> we don't know how this started, and we appreciate the love, but boy and girl have just one wish for two, 2019, and it is that you not end up in the hospital due to memes. Yeah, and when Netflix is the voice of reason, <clears throat> you're in trouble. Well, I don't know. They, they seem pretty reasonable. They just upped their prices. No, it's coming in February. Dicks. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> uh, what else? Hey, should we talk a little bit about CES, guys? Uh, CES was uh, last week in Las Vegas. It's the big consumer electronics show. Uh, a few things I thought of note that we could talk a little bit about. Screen tech. When you get in your 8K TV. No. <laughs> no. When, you, when are you getting your intelligent <clears throat> toilet? Oh, do you think I can say... Okay, Google, wipe my bum. <laughs> On the website howaboutbeover.com, they say, start out with a decent size wad of tissue. Three balled up squares should be plenty. Reach around and behind your butt and lean onto the opposing cheek. Wipe with the pointer, middle, and ring fingers of your actual hand under the Oh, my. <laughs> to read more, look at the link in your Google Home. Uh, see, Google knows all. Wow. <laughs> okay, now watch this. Alexa. How do I wipe my bum? See, Alexa does not. Not even on the same playing field. Yeah, Google has all the information. Google will walk you through it <laughs> if you somehow made it step by step. Yeah. I wonder if you could ask it for step by step directions. Here, hang on, wait. I'm finished pooing. Oh, you, you can. You can with recipes. You can, you can give you the step by steps in sequence. So maybe. 
This this show just turned scatological. <laughs> oh God! Yeah, We're talking okay. about CES now. Here we are getting poop in <laughs> right, right into the abyss. Uh, no, uh, no, right into the toilet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Google had a huge presence at CES mm-hmm. this year. What what kind of stuff did they uh, come out with? Well, you know, both both C, uh, both Google and Amazon really they they don't really say much at these shows um, in in terms of a lot of announcements about themselves in particular it was all about what assistants are built into now yes exactly so there there's really an arms race going on right now between google and amazon in terms of how many different products can they stuff the assistants into um and that was basically what was what where or that's essentially what was what was at ces so there was everything from like we talked about uh a a toilet that has google assistant built into it um what else uh, smart plugs the smart plugs you know amazon's got a microwave with a with the a word built into it um you know there's wall clocks there's alarm clocks like bedside clocks anything you can think of is now coming with the assistance built in your tvs sound bars speakers cray cray mm-hmm well, the nice thing is, is that a lot of these companies are including both assistants in it. And for me, who has both, you know, Google Assistant and the Amazon Assistants, I don't really want to have to choose one ecosystem or another. I'd like to be able to use both because, you know, there are benefits to having both. Right. Well, and from a manufacturing <clears throat> perspective, are you going to put in just one and limit your audience right. to half the world? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to go for all of it? Right. Yes. So. Yeah, so it's going to kind of be interesting to where where this all lands in terms of if going forward. Um, you know, I don't think in anyone's world uh, one device is going to win out over the other, and the other one will disappear. <laughs> I think we're just we're going to have competing ecosystems for the foreseeable future. There, there's going to be there's going to be Amazon. And there's going to be Google. You don't think one will eventually become the Betamax I, of voice assistants? I, I don't think so. I, I don't see it. I, I mean, I think they're both. I mean, Google is is catching up to uh, Amazon in leaps and bounds in terms of how many how many devices uh, have um, the Google Assistant built in. Yeah, there's really you know it, like it's, I've got smart plugs and stuff in the house here, and you know when I'm looking for a new product, there's really not a lot that I've come across that don't work with both already. You know, so uh, we're just going to keep seeing more and more of that. I think that both companies are, are well invested in this technology and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. So, and I think the real, the real <clears throat> AT potential here and the re- reason why we are often talking about the digital assistance is because it's just, it's taking those steps towards uh, a smart home that uh, is going to make uh, life for a lot of people who rely on AT a lot easier. I think it already has, mm-hmm. you know, the, the home automation stuff that we had in the past <clears throat> um, was pretty similar to the home automation stuff that's out now. The difference is that it's mass produced right. and cheaper Remarkably and, uh, cheaper. Um, you know, all readily done through a voice interface. You know, if you don't, if, you, if you're not, if you're nonverbal or something, you know, it, it makes it a little more dodgy. You see, you're still going to need some sort of other uh, input method, but uh, well, and that brings up an interesting point. I was thinking about this the other day about about people who are nonverbal, and I'm just wondering if it hasn't already been produced, if there's something you know planned 
that is going to act as some some sort of a, a liaison between um, digital assistants and, say, a communication device. Well, I mean, if if I was a communication device manufacturer, <clears throat> uh, I would want to build that in. Right. Yeah. Okay, but a lot of these. I wonder if that's coming. A lot of these communication devices now, I, I think, are running. You know, uh, you know, mainstream OSs, right? Like Android. Yep. So you know, the Google Home or the Amazon Alexa have apps for Android or iOS. Mm -hmm. So could you not already use switch access or you know scanning to go into the app? trigger the lights on or off or whatever your automation is that way it's really a good question yeah you you, you may be able to I've, I've never actually tried mm -hmm. uh with either of the interfaces to see if they're uh, switch accessible but uh i wonder if that's worth a show maybe we should we could talk to somebody about that yeah yeah that's because that's question. uh because i do i do often think about that in in terms of like i mean digital assistants and and voice activated <clears throat> um products around the home are absolutely amazing for for a lot of people, but for people who specifically are nonverbal, um, they're kind of being left out in the cold. And I just wonder if there's, if if there are options out there for them. Well, I mean, there's tons of options, both in terms of uh, apps that have vocal output as well as you know dedicated devices that have vocal output. And I would assume that that vocal output would be enough to trigger, trigger it. Yeah. yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, I would assume so. You know, so. And you can just, you know, for something like a communication aid, you can just have a, an OK Google button. Yeah. It's OK, Google. Go back to sleep. Sorry, I don't know how to help with that yet. 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 See, I love how, how, how optimistic Google is, right? Alexa just says, I don't know. The Google Assistant is like, I don't know that yet. <laughs> I don't control your life completely yet. I think there, I think there's probably a list that that goes on when when you ask a question like that. Yeah. That goes on to Google's list, and there's some some guy sitting there in Google going, "That's a stupid question." Yeah, that's well, also I, a stupid question. Oh, I'd like to know the answer to that one. <laughs> yeah, and depending on how many requests you know that pops up as you know, will determine the priority. That's one of the things that really bugs me about these assistants is a lot of these things, like the language translation. Um, there was another question I thought of the other day and asked Google. It says, I'm not available in your area yet. Like, everything lands in the U.S. first. If you're going to launch something, launch it. Oh, Ryan, you're such no, a No, like, why does it have to be U.S. only? You know, launch it in North America. I don't know. <clears throat> Licensing. Uh, okay, anything else to say about CES? That Anything that stood out to you, uh, Ryan? nothing that really stood out to me i mean it, honestly at wise i mean well there was a ton of neat stuff uh in terms of of at specifically uh you know we kind of touched on the digital assistant stuff the only th other thing that i thought was interesting uh was uh, an announcement about the new models of the htc vive uh which is the new which is a virtual reality headset i thought was interesting that they've built now built in eye tracking into that device um, in order to cut down on the um, amount of motion sickness that some people have been getting. Right. Um, and I thought that was interesting because eye tracking technology in particular has been a, a big AT staple for a long time. And I thought that could very well make the Vibe a, a, a viable platform for something eye tracking down the road. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff to have built into a, a set of VR goggles, even for... Uh, you know, something like, say, the uh, iris vision. If if there was eye tracking in that device that could 
Yeah, potentially um, you could use uh, something that had eye tracking as as a means of uh, mapping out somebody's usable vision and then presenting information to the areas where they have usable right. vision. So. <clears throat> because that, that bubble vision that, that iris vision has, right, it, it magnifies certain areas of the field of view. Right. If... If there was eye tracking built into that, where that was all being done automatically, so wherever your eye was going, that's where your bubble was, that could that could really be a, a, a powerful piece of AT. Potentially, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So it also it also might have some real uh, possibilities for the physically impaired community as well, because you know that's where eye tracking has been used most right. as a as a means of input on computers uh, or um, on uh, communication aids. Um, so potentially you could have, you know, an on-screen keyboard presented and somebody would be able to type just by looking at the keys. Right. And you'd think in a, in a headset sized device like that, that it would be probably a lot more accurate because you're dealing with a limited, um, a limited field and, um, you know, the, your, your tracking technology is really close to where the eye actually is. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, that's something to keep an eye on as well. So hopefully maybe Ha <laughs> ha! You made you made you made eye joke. <laughs> it's kind of topical. My career as a comedian has begun. Oh no! We're adding comedian to journalist yeah, and right. uh, triple what threat. Was, what was the other one? Jour journalist. Uh, uh, wait, uh, now I forget. Yeah, I've, my resume is just too packed. I keep track of what I am now. Hey Steve, why don't you tell the fine folks about Canadian assistive technology? Well, Canadian Assistive Technology is a Canadian-based distributor of, guess what, assistive technology. I would not have guessed that. Uh, really? Oh, i got to work something better into the name then. <laughs> um, and uh, we do uh, all kinds of low vision and blindness aids, as well as all kinds of physical access aids and uh, accessible furniture, you name it. Visit our website at www.canastech.com. Rick, let me ask you about this. Chaos Technical Services. Chaos Technical Services. Don't sound so excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Speaking of repairs. We are the sister company to Canas Tech. Um, we do the repairs on uh, low vision devices, uh, uh, reading machines uh, for libraries, braille printers, and pretty well anything in between. We can be found at uh, www.chaostechnicalservices.com. All right, joining us now is Chad Andrews, Manager of Research and Education from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Chad, Hello. are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, oh, okay. great. Thank you for waiting for us. We were just, just getting stuff together. So um, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Ryan, and in the room with me today, I have Steve Barclay. Howdy doody. And I have Rob Minot. Hello. Thanks, Michelle. So we're going to gang up on you with a bunch of eye questions. Okay. That's <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we start things out uh, in telling us a little bit about the Foundation Fighting Blindness itself and what type of research you guys do there? Yeah, so that's, that's a good place to start. Um, we're a nonprofit organization, obviously. We've been around since 1974. And the organization's mission is to um, advance retinal disease research, education, and public awareness. So a big part of what we do, and I'll, I'll get into uh, how the organization has evolved over, over the last few decades a bit, 
Um, but a big part of what we continue to do and have always done is raise money to fund research into retinal diseases. And uh, that includes research into uh, gene therapy, stem cells, uh, approaches in, in pharmaceuticals, as well as artificial vision. Where do, you get your, where, where do you get your money from? Is it all private donations? Yeah, a significant majority of it is private donations. So it's coming from uh, mostly individuals and families who are affected by vision loss. And uh, you know, in, in the 1970s, that's actually how the organization started. Um, it was uh, primarily families who were affected by retinitis pigmentosa, which is a rare disease that leads to a progressive form of vision loss. And um, these families kind of looked at the scientific landscape and the treatment landscape and decided that uh, uh, more needed to be done to, to develop uh, very generally the science of, of the retina and a little bit more specifically treatments that would lead to uh, tangible results for patients affected by the disease. So it all, it all really started with retinitis pigmentosa and then slowly over the years and as the science has advanced and as we started to learn more about, about the human eye and about how uh, these inherited forms of blindness um, uh, develop and evolve, We've expanded our disease focus to include uh, not only inherited retinal diseases like uh, Stargardt disease and uh, Leber congenital lomerosis and uh, a number of others, uh, but also diseases that are traditionally considered inherited diseases, such as age-related macular degeneration. We started to focus on AMD about 10 years ago. And a bit more recently, um, we've been taking a very close look at glaucoma and uh, diabetic retinopathy. So what started as a pretty small focus, uh, retinitis pigmentosa, uh, that, that's roughly one in 3,500 Canadians who are affected by that disease, has grown to really uh, include the vast majority of uh, forms of, of uh, vision loss or a significant majority of forms of vision loss. And uh, you know, today in 2019, uh, rather than talking about rare forms of uh, retinal you know, diseases, uh, we're really thinking about the almost 6 million Canadians who are currently living with uh, either vision loss or a disease that puts them at risk of vision loss. And, the, and those numbers are only going up too. Uh, you know, the number of people who are entering into uh, that, that age range where macular degeneration is, is a real risk um, is, is, is only getting larger and larger. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a great point to bring up. Um, there are a number of different ways of, of projecting how vision loss is going to uh, accelerate for the Canadian population over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Uh, but some forecasts uh, suggest that that number is going to double over the next 10 years. And of course, that's tied, as you suggest, to Canada's aging population right. and uh, the fact that AMD is so pervasive. It affects uh, so many Canadians over the age of 55 years old. And really, I mean, uh, the, the sort of basic um, reality that that's tied to is the biology of the human eye and the fact that uh, it isn't really designed to last for 100 years. So uh, we'll all experience vision loss if we live long enough. It is true. I'm dealing with it now. Are F you? 51 years old. I had to get glasses. Um, <laughs> terrible. Well, you know, I, we're, we're really interested in, in funding um, treatments that uh, 
that will have an impact for Canadians who are living with retinitis pigmentosa, glaucoma, AMD, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot happening in the, in the, uh, the um, world of treatments for, for myopia as well. Some really incredible stuff. We're not involved in, in those initiatives, but um, you know, it's entirely possible in this utopian future where we're able to genetically engineer cells that will, that will have an impact on how our eyes function. It's entirely possible down the road that, you know, even something as simple as eyeglasses won't be necessary. Oh, never even considered that possibility. <laughs> I mean, you're 51, so you've still got a shot. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> Beautiful. Um, so, so let's talk about some of the research that's going on because there, there is so much happening right now and uh, some of it is showing some, some real, real promise. Um, I, I heard a colleague of yours speaking in uh, Victoria a few weeks back and uh, uh, I, I was just stunned at some of the things that she was, she was talking about. Um, so why don't, we start with, um, why don't we start with the state of research for, for RP right now and some of the more exciting stuff that's happening in, the, in that area because that's kind of where you guys started out. Yeah, definitely. Well, you mentioned uh, gene therapy at the outset, and I think that that's actually a really great place to start. And, um, you know, it's the start of 2019 right now, so I'm kind of naturally thinking about last year and kind of reflecting on all of the uh, exciting developments that occurred in 2018. And uh, uh, you can't really talk about, about vision research in 2018 without addressing the elephant in the room. And uh, that is really something that occurred at the end of 2017, uh, which was the FDA's approval of uh, its first uh, ocular gene therapy. So it's a treatment called Luxterna, and uh, it's now available in the American market. So it's a, it's a treatment that you can actually pay for. And uh, the patient group uh, uh, for, for, for this drug is a very small one. So I mentioned before that uh, individuals with uh, living with RP, um, it's one in, in 3,500 in, in Canada and in fact in North America as well. Um, in, individuals who uh, are in a position to, to uh, take Luxerna and have it, have it improve their eyesight um, have to be living with a very specific genetic mutation. It's a mutation of the RPE65 gene, in fact a biallelic mutation, which means that it affects both copies of the gene. And that mutation will manifest as either retinitis pigmentosa or Leber congenital omerosis. So if there are one in 3,500 individuals affected by retinitis pigmentosa, when it comes to this specific genetic mutation, we're talking about in North America, uh, uh, individuals that total in the thousands, uh, not the tens of thousands. So very, very small uh, patient group. Uh, however, uh, this gene therapy, Luxterna, uh, uh, has been approved and it is effective. Um, and uh, the incredible thing about it is that it doesn't just halt the uh, loss of, of vision. So it doesn't just put an end to your progressive vision loss. It actually restores a certain degree or a certain amount of sight as well. Wow. Um, so we're talking about a legitimate cure for blindness. We just had to add the caveat that it's a very specific form of blindness. And um, that's the way that, that we foresee this unfolding. We're not going to develop a single cure for blindness because uh, uh, blindness is a kind of catch-all term. Right. Uh, we're really hoping to develop several cures or a, a, a basket of uh, uh, different treatments that will address all of these different forms of vision loss and blindness. 
but it's really important to, to start the conversation by talking about Luxterna because now we have a proof of concept. Uh, this um, uh, this uh, company, um, Spark Therapeutics, uh, developed uh, a gene therapy in the traditional sense, uh, and I'll, I'll get to what a traditional form of gene therapy is in a second, uh, but developed this traditional gene therapy that does actually work and was able to make its way through uh, the various policy uh, hurdles that are that are in place in the United States to, to be put on the market. Um, so I say traditional gene therapy because what Luxterna does is replaces the mutated copy of RPE65 with a functioning copy of the gene. And that's kind of the, <clears throat> excuse me, that's, that's the, the dream of gene therapy. Uh, the original dream of gene therapy was to, uh, to inject uh, either through a, a, you know, an actual injection or intravenously uh, a functioning copy of a gene to, to replace uh, a mutated copy. And um, now as a result of Luxterna, we know that that works. And if it works for RPE65, it's possible that it can work for other genetic mutations and other diseases as well. So you really see this is this is the kind of thing that's going to accelerate probably exponentially, I imagine, over the next little while with people applying this technique to different conditions? Absolutely, yeah. I think that this is the starting point. Um, the one thing worth noting, though, is that the science, I think, will progress uh, if it is supported appropriately. And um, that's always a challenge that we're facing because it doesn't just rely on scientists and their teams in labs doing the work that, that we know they're doing. Um, it's dependent on uh, support from government and various other stakeholders. Uh, it's dependent on uh, where the, uh, the market is for treatments at any given point in time. Uh, just to provide you with an example, Luxterna currently costs in the United States um, uh, $850,000. So uh, that's a real policy challenge, right? Especially in Canada, where we have a public health care system. How do we take something that is that expensive and incorporate it into a public health care system where we can make it available to as many patients as possible? Right. So, yeah, when, when we're looking at the future of gene therapy, that's something that we really have to consider. Uh, I, I really believe in the science. I think that is taking us there. Um, but uh, one thing that we're looking at the Foundation Fighting Blindness as an organization is ways that um, we can ensure that uh, this treatment isn't just going to be available for the wealthy, but it's going to be available for anyone who is uh, affected by the relevant disease. And is that just a one-time treatment or like, is there a chance the body will reject that gene? Uh, we, we won't know uh, about the body rejecting the gene, of course, until, you know, uh, down the road when, when we see how patients respond. Um, it's it's required in both America and in Canada and most other countries that in order for uh, uh, treatment to make its way to market, it does have to go through rigorous clinical testing. Uh, so it has been tested in human beings and the results were positive enough for the FDA to say, yes, this can actually be, uh, this can actually be turned into, uh, into a treatment. Um, so uh, uh, scientists, certain scientists and certain policymakers feel, uh, feel optimistic. And, um, and yeah, it is at this point in time, at least it is a, a single shot, so to speak, treatment. So you only have to receive it once and you only have to pay for it once. And the idea is that it, uh, it restores uh, uh, your sight to the degree that that's possible and uh, it doesn't go away.
Now, it's entirely possible that down the road, you could be treated by Luxerta and you could develop some other complication. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're not going to, to potentially uh, get glaucoma, for example. But, right. um, yeah, the idea is that you receive the treatment once. That, that would totally suck, spending $850,000 to get your blindness cured only to go blind from something else. Well, it can happen, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so gene therapy, so what other types of, of uh, treatments are we dealing with these days? I guess there's, there's drug treatments. Uh, any, any advancements on the, on the drug treatment side for RP? <clears throat> Absolutely. There, there are really promising developments on the, uh, in the, the space of pharmaceuticals. Um, I'll just provide you with one example, and it's a relevant one uh, because there was a, a big development for the Foundation Fighting Blindness in 2018. Um, uh, but uh, one of the ophthalmologists that we're currently funding, Dr. Philippe Manier, who is a scientist at the Kremble Research Institute in Toronto, uh, he is uh, the inaugural recipient of our Restore Vision 2020 award, uh, which is designed to accelerate those projects that are on the cusp of going into uh, clinical trials and in fact to, to help them make their way into clinical trials um, and his work is focused on uh, retinitis pigmentosa but also age-related macular degeneration and glaucoma so it has quite a, quite a, um, uh, a, it has a lot of potential when it comes to uh, uh, quite a few diseases and, and a number of patients uh, who could potentially be impacted by this treatment if it makes its way to, to uh, the market. And um, the big discovery in Dr. Manier's lab is that in those individuals who are affected by retinitis pigmentosa, there is an abundance of a protein called neogenin. <clears throat> um, so what he and his team are working on developing is a specific molecule which would take the form of a drug down the road, again, if this makes its way through clinical trials and through, uh, through uh, policy frameworks. Uh, it would be a, a molecule taking the form of a drug that would be designed to uh, block that abundance of neogenin. And the hope is that if we do that, if we suppress or block neogenin, uh, we could potentially reverse uh, the uh, degenerative effects of retinitis pigmentosa and, uh, and do similar uh, things for AMD and glaucoma as well. So uh, that's quite promising. We're really excited about the work that Dr. Monier and his team are advancing, and, and we're really excited to be supporting that, uh, that work as it uh, continues in the lab and, and hopefully as it makes, makes its way into uh, uh, the clinical trial stages. Um, I should mention, and I, I mentioned the name of the, the initiative that's supporting Dr. Monier's, uh, Dr. Monier's work. Um, I should mention that that initiative, Restore Vision 2020, is made possible by Donna Green, her mother, Goldie Feldman, and an anonymous donor. So it's a really good example of uh, the incredible things that can happen uh, when you have a community of individuals who are affected by vision loss and are really motivated to make a tangible difference for, for you know, their own loved ones, but also for uh, Canadians in general. Neogenin sounds familiar to me, and maybe it's because I heard it previously at uh, at one of the other speeches. But isn't isn't it implicated in in other degenerative issues as well? It is. Um, I'm I'm mostly familiar with the work that he's doing as it relates to retinitis pigmentosa, and I haven't been able to read much at this point about how uh, his approach is going to differ or how it's going to be the same as it relates to AMD and glaucoma. 
Uh, so I don't know whether those other diseases, the non-inherited diseases, AMD and glaucoma, um, also are linked to an overabundance of neogenin. I don't know whether that's the case or not. My suspicion is that that is, in fact, the case. So uh, let's see. What we've, we've talked about gene therapy. We've talked about uh, uh, drugs. Uh, stem cells. Stem cells. Stem cells, for sure, yeah. I mean, maybe I will circle back around to Neogenin just for a second because okay. something occurred to me. Um, but uh, Dr. Mania's approach to Neogenin is obviously exciting because we are focused on, on advancing uh, that research that is going to make its way eventually into clinical trials. But it's worth noting that studying Neogenin is valuable as an approach to foundational science. So, so yes, uh, uh, Dr. Manier's work on Neogen could lead to the emergence of a treatment down the road that will that will affect the lives of patients. Um, but his his exploration of Neogen also tells us something about the human eye, and uh, I think that sometimes that in in the uh, all the excitement around emerging treatments and and you know considering everything that we've we've said about Luxterna and uh, the fact that we are kind of on the cusp of of uh, cures for blindness right now, um, what gets lost is the fact that foundational research is still essential. And uh, if we forget about that, then what we're going to do is kind of uh, curtail down the road, potentially significantly down the road, uh, curtail the development of, of new treatments uh, that would otherwise be available to us if we continue to support uh, uh, what some scientists call basic science, what others call uh, foundational research. Uh, but basically that work that kind of tells us more about uh, the human eye, uh, how the eye communicates to the brain, how the retina functions, how its different cells and molecules uh, communicate with themselves and with the brain. Uh, you know, th this, this is all essential and all the work that's being done in the treatment space right now is entirely dependent on decades of foundational uh, research. So that's another way of thinking about uh, Dr. Philippe Manier and his team is that yes, uh, uh, the Foundation Fighting Blindness is supporting uh, that work as it transitions into um, uh, later stages that we hope will lead to clinical trials and eventually treatments, but also uh, Neogenin tells us something about the human eye and how it functions, and that's absolutely essential. Um, cool. So that's that's uh, me circling back around to uh, Neogenin. As far as stem cells are concerned, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because uh, in the, the excitement surrounding Luxterna, uh, one mistake that we can make is to forget about uh, stem cells. And uh, that would be an enormous mistake because there is so much potential in stem cell therapy. Um, in fact, one thing that you know we've been talking about, we've been talking about it for, for a couple of years now, the Foundation of Funding Blindness, but we've been talking about it more so um, uh, over the course of uh, 2018 and this last month um, is uh, something, that, um, something that we think of as combination therapies. Um, so yes, there are uh, approaches that, that exist purely as uh, you know, uh, stem cell therapies or gene therapies or you know pharmaceutical uh, advancements or artificial vision, but one thing that holds a, a lot of potential is this idea of combining those different approaches, and uh, that's something that Dr. Andres Naj 
an FFB-funded scientist who is uh, at the Lunenfeld Tenenbaum Research Institute in Toronto. That's something that he's doing. Uh, in fact, he's combining stem cells and gene therapy to uh, develop a treatment for age-related macular degeneration. Mm. And what he's doing very specifically is finding ways to genetically engineer stem cells before they are transplanted into the eye. And uh, what he would like to do, since he's working on AMD, he would like to uh, uh, genetically program stem cells to release a, a molecule called anti-VEGF uh, that would have a real impact on individuals who are living with AMD. Um, so just to backtrack for one second, uh, VEGF is V-E-G-F. It stands for vascular endothelial growth factor. And uh, it's something that's naturally produced by the human body uh, in relation to the uh, development of blood vessels. Um, in fact, our body is capable of producing new uh, blood vessels as a result of this, uh, this protein, VEGF, uh, when we uh, lose older blood vessels. Uh, but in those individuals who are living with age-related macular degeneration, and also for individuals living with uh, uh, diabetic macular edema, which is the worst form of diabetic retinopathy, uh, in those patients, uh, uh, VEGF goes out of control um, and starts to overcompensate for lost blood vessels. And uh, in the advanced stages of AMD and in diabetic macular edema, uh, what that leads to is an abundance of uh, 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 blood vessels that have developed incorrectly, and uh, they swell and they hemorrhage, and they actually leak blood into the eye. Um, that's why we distinguish between dry AMD, which is the early stages of AMD, and uh, wet AMD, which is the much more severe form uh, that is more closely tied to uh, severe vision loss. So um, patients with AMD and with diabetic macular edema for years now have uh, had a treatment available to them, which is anti-VEGF. It is a molecule that uh, uh, suppresses the uh, uh, the uh, uh, out-of-control nature of their uh, existing uh, VEGF production. Um, the problem with this treatment, or, or it's not really a problem, but what, one of the characteristics of this treatment is that it can be quite invasive. You have to go in for monthly mm -hmm. injections into your eye. And uh, you can imagine that that's probably not a very pleasant thing to experience it. Is, yeah. Uh, to go into uh, the clinic every single month to get a needle in your eye. I don't have to imagine it. I watched <laughs> my dad go through it. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so this is something that Dr. Naj and his team are, are working on, is actually engineering uh, that stem cell so that it can be transplanted into the uh, retina and it can time release this molecule, anti-VEGF, on its own. So rather than going in every single month, you could go in once and have this uh, engineered stem cell uh, injected into your eye, and then the stem cell can kind of go off and do work on its own. Uh, we don't know what this will look like. Um, uh, you know, it's still in the, the research or lab phase right now. Um, but, uh, you know, ideally it would just be that single injection of the, the stem cell into your eye, or, you know, maybe it would be annual injections or something along those lines. Um, but our hope is that, you know, maybe someday this treatment could uh, emerge and it could uh, replace the, uh, the existing standard of care for patients with uh, AMD and diabetic macular edema. So that's a really good example of, of um, um, a project that is, that is finding ways to combine the uh, approaches of both genes, gene therapy and stem cell therapy. Cool. Yeah. 
one thing that that is worth noting when it when it comes to both this project and and stem cells in general is that um, you know stem cells are amazing. We we all know this. Stem cells are in the news all the time. That's going to be the case going forward, certainly. Um, but part of what makes stem cells amazing is that they are able to self-replicate and they're able to turn into different types of cells. That's why they're useful. They have this kind of malleable and amorphous quality, uh, but they share that characteristic with cancer cells. Uh, that's what makes cancer so devastating is that it can self-replicate and it can turn into uh, different kinds of cells that you can you find in all over the human body. That's why you can have brain cancer or lung cancer or uh, many different forms of cancer. Uh, so we know that this is an issue and, and one of the potential issues with stem cell therapy is that we could put a stem cell, uh, even an engineered stem cell into the human eye and uh, there could be unforeseen consequences. So scientists are doing amazing work when it comes to stem cells uh, in vitro, in a, a test tube or in a vial, uh, and they're able to do incredible things. But one of the real hurdles right now is, you know, what happens when we take those stem cells that you've done miraculous things with in vitro and we place them in vivo in a body or in a live biological environment. Uh, you know, there, there could have there could be cascading consequences. Right. So that's something that researchers are working through right now. Um, but one thing that Dr. Naj and his team are, are very aware of is this potential issue, and uh, they're getting out ahead of it uh, with um, uh, this uh, system that they're they're working on that they call the Safe Cell System. In fact, they re recently published information on the Safe Cell System in Nature. Uh, the uh, scientific journal Nature, and what Safe Cell essentially is is a remote-controlled kill switch for engineered stem cells. So the idea is that uh, the Safe Cell system will allow researchers to track what is happening with these bioengineered stem cells that have been injected into the human eye or even into the human body, be able to track what's happening with those stem cells and monitor uh, progress. And if something goes wrong, uh, flip the switch, so to speak. That's a metaphor because I'm sure it would be something other than a, <laughs> a natural switch. Um, but uh, basically flip the switch so that the stem cells are, are shut off and, uh, and whatever problem is, is uh, taking place is put to an end. Yeah, See. last thing you need is stem cells turning to the dark side. See, and that's, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. See, that's yeah. smart. That's smart. Like these people who are working on AI, take note. <laughs> that's right. We need kill a kill switches. switch. <laughs> kill switches are a good thing. Well, I was thinking, you know, if you combine this approach and you you uh, you know, can do a gene replacement, could we have an off switch for politicians? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to call him after our conversation. <laughs> Scale up the safe cell system so that it can be applied to any number of things, including uh, politicians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the education work that, that you guys do at the foundation as well? Because I'm sure that, that, that that's part of, part of the fight too, is taking all of, all of these advances and educating the public in general to, and letting them know what you guys are up to. What kind of things do you do in, in terms of that? Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad, glad you brought that up because that's so incredibly important. I mean, one thing that we're constantly facing is the, the fact that science too often exists in this kind of isolated bubble, you know, where scientists and, 
and uh, other researchers and you know sometimes policymakers are speaking a language of their own and and the patients who are actually actually uh, affected most profoundly by the products of science you know are, don't really have any awareness of what's going on uh, so we're always combating that and, and one of the ways that we do that is through an in-person educational series uh, that uh, we've had for many years now called vision quest and uh, uh, Vision Quest takes many forms, but it's always a combination of uh, scientists and staff here at the Foundation Fighting Blindness and uh, policymakers and uh, industry representatives and patients uh, being in the same physical space and talking about uh, work that is ongoing and treatments that are currently available and resources that are available for uh, uh, patients uh, to try to connect those dots to try to break down those uh, unfortunate barriers between science and the uh, patients that are affected by science. So um, we hold vision class uh, uh, every single year. We hold it at uh, multiple sites across the country. In fact, we're going to uh, Winnipeg next month uh, then we'll be in Vancouver in April. Um, we'll be uh, holding an event in May in Toronto. And we'll be going to Halifax in September and uh, again in Toronto in October. And then uh, hopefully uh, we'll be going to Calgary in October as well. Uh, that's, take that with a grain of salt because that's kind of our initial planning where we're kind of releasing uh, uh, concrete details. Uh, uh, we'll be releasing con concrete details on our website uh, in the near future. Uh, that website is ffb.ca. Um, yeah, that's that's our educational series where we often have researchers and scientists that we're funding uh, uh, up in front of patients talking about the, the work that we're doing. And um, uh, we also uh, do our best to uh, give patients some, some sense of what resources are currently available to them. Um, because that's one thing that, that happens inevitably, uh, both in Canada and elsewhere, is that you get diagnosed uh, with uh, a disease. You can take retinitis pigmentosa as an example. Uh, it sounds quite scary and the, the news is really scary. You're essentially told by your ophthalmologist that you have an inherited form of uh, degenerative vision loss and uh, it's going to manifest as a uh, kind of increasingly um, uh, more extreme form of tunnel vision. And uh, that's going to lead, uh, whether it be five years, 10 years or 20 years to uh, you being either blind or very close to, to blind. Uh, so that's scary. And, and then the patient uh, is kind of left, left on their own to go out into the, the world and kind of figure out what that means. So at Vision Quest, we try to, to provide uh, individuals with, um, with some information and with some support and uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's one of the key things that we do at Vision Quest. Now, one of the things I learned at the last Vision Quest I was at is that you guys actually actively track a lot of research and can also provide linkages for uh, your your uh, not not your patients, your clients, uh, to different different research uh, opportunities. Um, how how does somebody get linked in with you guys and and you know get connected? Yeah, so it's, it's, there are a number of ways to do that. Um, uh, we try to be as open as possible to uh, uh, communications from, from uh, patients. Um, so that could, that could be you know, giving us a call here at the office. Uh, we do our best to pick up the phone every single time we hear it and uh, provide 
help for individuals on the phone. And uh, we also have resources that are that are online. So one thing that we've had available for a number of years now is uh, our patient registry, which is essentially a database of uh, Canadians who are affected by inherited retinal diseases. Um, so if you are diagnosed with an inherited retinal disease, you can go online and, and add your name and your information to our patient registry. And we will send you contact information to reach out to what we call a registry center. We have four sites across Canada. And uh, that will start a contact, start a conversation with a medical professional who will ask you questions about your genetic history and your diagnosis and basically put you on a list uh, so that you can um, be available for any clinical trials that are relevant for you and your disease. So if you're someone who's diagnosed with an inherited retinal disease, you're interested in being part of a clinical trial, uh, the patient registry is something that's available for you as a way of you know, being, uh, being put in, uh, in a queue to, uh, to access trials that are relevant for you. Um, another thing that we do have on our website is something that we launched in 2018, actually. It's called uh, Vision Care Pathways. And it's essentially our primary resource available to individuals affected by vision loss. Uh, you just go to our website, you see, uh, uh, I think it's right now, it's, it's a tab on the top of the site called Eye Diseases and Pathways. You click on that, you'll see a pull-down menu of a number of different eye diseases. We've covered uh, uh, the main ones that we've been involved in uh, advancing research on. Uh, you click on the disease that uh, you or your loved one is affected by, and uh, we provide quite a bit of information. So we provide an overview that kind of tells you about the disease. Uh, we give you information on uh, uh, what the disease's pathology is, uh, how it relates to uh, 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 the, the genotype, um, and we also give you a link to the uh, patient registry, um, as well as a link that will take you to a site called clinicaltrials.org, and uh, that's the site of um, that lists clinical trials uh, that are currently being offered uh, internationally. Does does that site uh, provide any kind of uh, rating of those things of those different trials? Like some some of them can be pretty sketchy. I understand. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. So clinicaltrials.org is run by the National Institutes of Health, American organization, uh, but the NIH is very clear up front about the fact that they don't vet any of the clinical trials that, that are posted to the site. So right now there's this process that's available for basically anyone who's involved in running a clinical trial uh, to go ahead and upload uh, relevant information. Uh, so you're correct. What that has led to is this situation where uh, phony and in some cases dangerous uh, clinical trials that really don't even deserve to be called clinical trials are being posted to clinicaltrials.org. Um, so on Vision Care Pathways, that resource on our site, uh, we have kind of outlined that in as much detail as we can and uh, uh, provided a kind of disclaimer telling patients that if you're going to use this tool that we provided, if, uh, that, will, that will take you to clinicaltrials.org and pre-populate uh, your disease and provide you with a list of clinical trials, uh, you still have to uh, consult your ophthalmologist anytime you're considering a clinical trial because we just don't know what's out there. 
Um, unfortunately, uh, the clinical trial landscape has become a kind of cottage industry, and there are some really problematic things happening. I believe that a couple of women in the United States were blinded yeah. last year as a result of uh, becoming involved in a, um, a clinical trial that uh, you know, wasn't wasn't really based on sound science at all. Now, there are a few things that you can do to identify illegitimate clinical trials um, in the space of vision science. Uh, one of the nice things about the human eye is that you have two of them. And what that means is that you have a built-in test. So anytime someone is saying that they're going to uh, perform uh, treatment on you uh, in both eyes, uh, that's a red flag because uh, no one should ever be doing work on both sides. There's, there's no point in doing that. Right. And that just means that if there are any issues, then that could be more pronounced because it's affecting two eyes instead of one. So that's a real red flag. Uh, another one is anytime someone is asking you for money, um, if you are being involved in, if you're involved in a clinical trial, you are essentially volunteering yourself to the scientific process. Uh, you could even be offered a placebo and it could have no effect on you whatsoever. Uh, if you do actually get the treatment, uh, or sorry, I should say intervention, it's not a treatment until it makes it to market. Uh, but if you are offered the intervention, it could have no impact whatsoever. Uh, it could be ineffective. Um, so what all this means is that you should never be paying for this sort of thing. Uh, if the clinical trial is legitimate, uh, it won't be asking you for money. So that's another way of uh, identifying a, a phony trial. And we always uh, tell uh, patients and supporters that you should feel free to reach out to us if you ever have questions about clinical trial. At the very least, we should be able to point you in the direction of uh, someone who can give you some concrete answers. Where, where can people find uh, Foundation Fighting Blindness online if they are interested in any of this? Yeah, so it's ffb.ca, uh, simple as that. And uh, that'll give you all the resources that, that I've mentioned, as well as contact information. And uh, uh, we are open to being contacted in, in any way. Uh, so like I said before, that could be a phone call, that could be an email. Uh, it could be uh, taking things into your own hands and signing up for the registry on your own, uh, whatever makes sense for uh, the individuals who, who is uh, seeking us out. Listen, Chad, we want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your day uh, and talking with us. Um, it's, it's fascinating um, hearing about uh, some of the progress that, that you guys are making. We'd love to have you on again uh, at a future point and, and talk more about uh, more of them. Yeah, I'd love to be on. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, this is one of the things that is, is a joy to do is actually talk about science that we're helping advance and uh, uh, talking about the way that um, it could affect the patients. So uh, really glad to be on and happy to talk in the future. Sounds fabulous. Okay, take care. All right, bye-bye. Wow, okay, that was that was pretty fascinating. A lot, of, a lot of terms, I have no idea what they mean, but... Yeah, I mean, if you were somebody living with one of those conditions, you'd know a lot of the terminology, mm -hmm. I imagine. I'm but, sure. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the foundation is just doing some really cool work and, and tied into some, some amazing research. Uh, I, I love what they do, and I, I just love hearing about it, because yeah. there, there's so many amazing things going on. But, you know, it does bring up a, an interesting quandary. Like once once we do develop treatments for some of these um, eye diseases, like especially what, what struck me is especially macular degeneration because it's such a common eye disease that affects so many people. If they do develop a treatment for that and it is, say, for example, 
how how are we going to manage that? Like, how is, you know, how how are we going to make that available to the amount of people that are actually suffering from macular degeneration without bankrupting the country? Yeah, I mean, it's astounding when you hear numbers like that for a single treatment. Right. Um, you know, and you wonder, you know, ethically how they justify that. But then we don't know how much money was spent researching that cure. We don't know how many people necessarily are, you know, able to use that cure. Right. But it is a cure. It's not a treatment regime. Right. You know, we've, we've got lots of drugs that uh, are approved in Canada that cost, you know, tens to hundreds of thousand dollars That's per true. year um, as an ongoing maintenance schedule that somebody's going to be on for the rest of their natural life unless something else comes along. So... That's true. You know, true. if the if the government can negotiate drug prices with a company like that and bring it down to, you know, a reasonable level, um, you know, there's there's some real potential. But that that one cure, you know, that that affects. I, I believe he said one in thirty five hundred Canadians. Yeah. You know, that's that's a fair number of Canadians, and it's a it's a disease that typically is diagnosed when they're fairly young. So if you're looking at you know, $800,000 across the span of a person's life. Um, True. It, yeah. it, it has, you know, uh, we already know that, that blind people are typically underemployed. You know, they find it more difficult to get employment. You know, they have a lot less opportunities when it comes to certain aspects of life. Is it worthwhile for, you know, somebody who's 10 years old to get that, that treatment? Damn straight it is. Right. Sure. If, if you're 90. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much. Yeah. Right. You know? Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. That's, that's a really good point. Yeah. So fascinating stuff. And, you know, and it makes you just wonder, like, every year it sounds like, you know, they're they're breaking through in something. And I I get the feeling, like, again, I'm no scientist, at least not this week. By next <laughs> no, week, I may be a scientist <laughs> as well as journalist, comedian, and whatever the other one was. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, it seems to me that once once they've cracked that code and they've they've they're able to cure one eye disease through whatever through gene therapy or through stem cell research, uh, it makes it that much easier for the next one. Yes, and then the next one, and then the next one, and it's like a domino effect, and, and soon all these eye diseases will be falling. And so that's the really exciting part of it is that you know we could be at the beginning here of some real progress. Well, ge genetic therapy, um, I mean, there, there's so many genetic conditions out there, unique genetic conditions that, that people have. Um, the, the idea that it's like, oh, you've got this. Oh, here. There you go. Replace that gene, put in a kill switch. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there you are. You're cured. You know, that's, that's just crazy. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, it's, think about cancer treatments, right? You know, I'm sure there's, there's cross research being done. You know, if they can do gene therapy on an eye, you know, gene therapy to replace cancer cells or put kill switches, yeah. you know, yeah. using stem cells for cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're self-regenerating, you know, are we that far off from yeah. being able to cure some types of cancer? Yeah. yeah well, that's our stuff. next guess, eh? <laughs> <laughs> call, the, call the BC <laughs> Cancer Foundation. Let's find out where they're at. Actually, I have a friend who works there. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a broad field, you know, stem cell and gene therapy, you know, it's it's so kind of cross-platform, right? It can be applied to anything. Oh, and just think 10 years ago, they were still, they were fighting over stem cell research. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and you probably put it back 10 years. 
Oh, un- all un- that fighting. undoubtedly. But they didn't want, you know, there, there were ethical considerations around right. using fetal, right. fetal stem cells. Now That's they right. can... Now they can take any cell, put right. it in a chemical bath, and turn it into a stem cell. Oh, okay. So there, there's, you know, the the science progressed in that time to a point where the ethical concerns were not not there anymore. That's what happened. See, I didn't know. No. I didn't realize that's what happened. I thought we, they, they just figured it out. But uh, Anything else to say about that, fellas? Do you feel like you're smarter? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm a doctor now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, hey, Ryan. Yeah. Uh, where can people find us? ATBanter.com. They can also drop us an email if they so desire, ATBanterPodcast at gmail.com. And if they're really inspired, they can find us online on them social networks. There's Facebook, there's Twitter, and there's Instagram. You know, we might have to actually switch this up so you're not talking about Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and being a hypocrite, given that you've given all of those up. I have. Cold turkey. Yeah. So. Yeah, maybe, it's, good for him to, it's good for him to relive that. Is, is it? Yeah, okay. I think so. You sure we're not maybe triggering him? <laughs> well, I tell you. His fingers are twitching. He's not, he? Well, he's missing it to a certain extent. Yeah, but. I totally am. I, yeah. I really am. I'm, I'm missing the connection that I had with my family through, yeah. uh, through Facebook. Uh, I'm, I'm missing being able to uh, shout at Trump on Twitter, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, but uh, I've never been mentally healthier. <laughs> so you would recommend it to everybody? Uh, yeah. Just, well, that would be the- so, social media, as far as I'm concerned, social media is poison. It's, it- it's poison for the mind. It, it's, it's just... It, it's such a except our except our social media feeds everybody that's what he meant <laughs> well it, it it just it can, can be so no it's, i know it, it just, just know allows people to be anonymous dicks all the time yeah. and uh you know you get into debates online and they they typically devolve into you know pissing contests and personal right. attacks yeah it's just yeah it's just not a very it's just not a very nice place I, to I, Oh, well, to play. I'm, I'm telling you, I think I think two, three years from now, I think it's going to be a very different. It's going to look very different, because I think there there is the pushback against Facebook in particular is really growing. They did not have a good 2018, and I don't think it's going to shape up. They're, they're going to have a, a much better 2019. Look at the study that. Well, the just, demographics have changed. But but you know. just look at the study that came out. Uh, what was it last week? Uh, that talked about specifically. Uh, fake news and the fact that what was it? Oh, people over oh, right. sixty-five yeah, yeah, were, yeah. The, the, were seventy-five percent more likely to pass on fake news articles. The, and the, the the most likely people to pass on fake news articles are senior citizens and conservatives. Right. Yes. Uh, so you know it's a real growing problem, and 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 Ryan's also absolutely right too. Is that the demographics have completely changed? Uh, you know, people under the age of. I would, I would I would say thirty. Don't really use Facebook all that often. No, no. Abby, Abby and her crew are like Instagram and Snapchat. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Instagram's the new, the new thing. Yeah. Well, it's not so new, but everybody seems to be moving over to that platform. Isn't that owned by Facebook it as is. well? Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. 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 They they probably own it all, but I don't know. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next few years. But I, I suspect that that their reign at the top is is beginning to. 
Let's let's have a, a bagging on social media uh, episode. Oh, we well, could, I was we actually had... thinking of getting the Canadian Mental Health Association to talk about social media and you know the, the mental aspects of its effects. Oh, that's a great idea. Except our feeds, everybody. Our feeds are wholesome. <laughs> There's no fake news. We don't post anything. That's why they're wholesome. Up. I, I post stuff all the time. You post stuff. It's great. It's lovely. It's Come great. So, check it out. So really, what you guys should think about our social media feed, it, it, it's just a conduit to Rob. <laughs> Pretty much. That's right. Pictures of my cat. <laughs> Uh, okay, is that it? Or did we cover everything? I, I think, think we, we covered did. everything. Okay, yeah. everybody. Thanks bleep, bleep, bleep. That's all, folks. Google glasses. Google glasses. <laughs> Google. Google. I'm going to be like that, that old Polish woman. How do you use your Google Home if you can't say Google? It, sometimes it takes me a couple times. I don't know why I can't. I think I need to go to speech therapy. I should have bought a f***ing Alexa. I need to get your communication. Shut here. up, Alexa. Not you. <laughs> Okay, everybody, that's going to about do it for us this week. We will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Music provided by bensound.com. Whoa, look at that. Master of the one take.